Mountain 13, a bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Hannah rodriguez Ferrar, Chief of Staff to the President and Secretary to the Board of Trustees. Dr. rodriguez Ferrar came to Colgate in 2018 after spending time in similar roles at Dominican University of California and Brown University. Before joining Brown, uh, Dr. rodriguez Ferrar worked as a project manager and researcher at Harvard University, among others. Uh, she earned her bachelor's and master's degree from Brown University, a master's in education from the Harvard University Graduate School of Education, and a PhD from Brown University in the Department of History and Art and Architecture, and an education doctorate from Harvard University Graduate School of Education. At Colgate, Dr. rodriguez Ferrar helped redefine the structure of the Board of Trustees and has engaged its members in support of a new diversity, equity, and inclusion program. She's also contributed to the development of the university's third century plan and has helped secure Colgate's partnership with QuestBridge um, for admission. Um, and she was responsible for overseeing the committee charged with delivering an in-person commencement celebration for the class of 2021 this year. Hannah, welcome to 13. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm looking forward to this. All right. We're happy to have you here. And uh, I will just note, this is our last episode of our season uh, before we go on a short hiatus this summer. Uh, and we will be returning again in August. So you have the uh, the distinguished uh, uh, final guest slot here. Closing, the, closing it all up. That's right. That's right. Putting a button on it. Yeah. Put a bow on it, I guess it is. Your role here at Colgate touches on many areas of operations, but before I get into a lot of those things, I think folks are always curious when they hear uh, someone is the chief of staff for a university president. So I'm very interested to know uh, what a typical day looks like for the chief of staff at Colgate University uh, and working day-to-day uh, -day with uh, President Casey. So um, chief of staff role is varied and uh there is no typical day. <laughs> That's basically what it means. Um, I, I'd love to think of myself as kind of Leo in the West Wing, <laughs> right? <laughs> kind of that, you know, that's, that's what I aspire to. Um, but it, it literally is different every day. I think uh, when, when people ask, what do you, you know, what are you supposed to, what does a chief of staff do? I tend to describe it as trying to expand the capacity of the president, right? So the president ha has, you know, too many things to do. And so what is the, you know, how can I um, fill in where he, where he can't be? How can I uh, be where, like move things forward when he has to be somewhere else and doing other work? Um, so expanding the, expanding the capacity of the president. The other thing is the president's office is also the only place that looks at the whole institution all the time. Right. And so various divisions, you know, they like in the academic side of the house, that's what they're, they're thinking about the classroom and research. And so they they wouldn't necessarily consider what happens in advancement and advancement is doing that. We got to raise money. We've got to engage uh, alumni. We're thinking about stewardship. And, and so they wouldn't necessarily make the connection with the academic side of the house. But the president's office has to see all those things in an integrated way. And so that's what makes it very 
you know, varied every day. No, no, no day is typical because um, the, I'm not just doing like, oh, today I'm thinking about academics and tomorrow I'm thinking about advancement and the day after that I'm thinking about athletics and this day I'm thinking about student life. It's like all of it happens every day. Hmm. Gotcha. And I think much like a university president, uh, a chief of staff role isn't something you can study for at school. Like you don't go off to school looking for like, oh, I'm going to be a chief of staff. So I'm curious about your pathway to the role you have now. And, you know, maybe any advice you have for folks that might be considering a career in college administration. <laughs> that's a that's a good couple of good points. No, you, no one grows up thinking they're going to be a chief of staff, nor do I think people think they're going to grow up and come become a provost. Right. Like, what is that? So that actually feeds into how I ended up in this role. I uh, started a PhD program in art history right after undergrad. But, um, you know, when you're in college, you don't really know what a university is or a college is. You just kind of go to class, right? And you you think that a university is the, the students and the faculty. And But what... I discovered when I was in graduate school was the machine that runs the whole thing, right? So it's more than just what happens in the classroom. There's a whole lot of supportive stuff that allows the enterprise, the academic enterprise to happen. So when I was in graduate school in art history, I had gone to the same place I went to undergrad, right? So what that allowed me to do was I didn't have to worry about figuring out, you know, school or the new city or anything like that. But what it allowed me to do was think about the institution and check out a whole bunch of other stuff, right? So I ended up on a lot of committees as the grad representative on a sexual harassment committee, you know, sexual developing sexual harassment policy or on a bunch of search committees that, you know, most graduate students aren't really thinking about that stuff. But I was like, oh, I'm, I have capacity to do this because I know Brown, so I didn't need to learn about it. Um, I also started doing a lot of stuff as an alum. So that gave me a, an insight into a different part of the institution. So here I was, I'd done the undergraduate thing. I was doing a PhD. So I was thinking about the academic enterprise and, and its different part, started doing other kind of administrative pieces from search committees and those kinds of things, and then started doing things as an alum. Um, which gave me insight into the advancement, external relations. What does that world look like? And so basically what that did for me was um, had me think about the machine of, a, of an institution of higher ed, right? Like how does a college or university work? What are the various pieces? You know, who are all these people running around and what do they do? Um, and how do they support the mission? And so what happened was the art history thing has always been, you know, kind of an intellectual interest and I love doing it and, you know, whatever. Um, but the, the running of an institution became infinitely more interesting as the, you know, time went on, which led me to kind of leave my program for a while um, and think about how organizations work. So um, weirdly, that brought me to Harvard Business School. Because, you know, sure, it's like it's total random thing, right? Um, and at Harvard Business School, I was a research associate, so I wrote case studies. I wrote the, you know, because they do everything in the case method. Um, and I happened to be in writing cases on for-profit service companies from, you know, Zipcar to um, Oracle, uh, 
first union, I wrote a lot of cases on banks, on eBay, um, those kinds of things. And what that showed me was a kind of parallel world of a service industry, right? That was all for profit, which taught me how to see education as a service industry, right? And so while at HBS, I just, you know, really started to think about, well, what is it I want to be doing? I definitely wanted to be in higher ed, but at that point, I wasn't sure if it was going to be as, a, you know, in art history that was losing its appeal. It's kind of like lost in the whole, what, what do I do next? So I happened to be taking a class at the ed school at Harvard Graduate School of Education and um, starting to see a lot of parallels between the research I was doing at HBS and thinking about what it is I wanted to do next. Uh, and faculty members there were like, you should do a doctorate here in education in higher ed, because I knew I wanted to be in higher ed. I just didn't know where, right? Like, what did that mean? So I start a second doctorate program because, you know, that's what you do. And, and while I'm at the ed school, I take a class on, um, you know, you just take a class and I start doing a research project on ABDs, all but dissertation. And that's what I was at Brown, right? Um, and it was a, it was a, Hearts, it's a very bad space to be in, being an ABD, because you're neither here nor there. You're not taking classes. You're kind of alone. You're trying to finish a dissertation. You're looking for what's next. Um, and what I discovered in, in studying these people who hadn't finished was the amount of loss that they had in their lives and sadness, even decades leaving their doctorate. So I was like, okay, I can't, I can't let that happen to me. So here I am doing a doctorate at GSE and on the side, without telling one at, at Harvard, I start finishing my one at Brown. And the one at Brown, they didn't know necessarily what I was doing at Harvard. So they were like, okay, whatever. So I, I finished the one at Brown, much to the surprise of everyone at Harvard, and then um, ended up getting you know, hired by Brown, the, the president at that time, Ruth Simmons, because she was like, you know, she knew me. I was on the board of trustees, um, which is also part of the understanding of higher ed and everything else. So how I ended up in a chief of staff role more than anything was simply saying yes to a lot of things at institutions I was at because I was really interested in how institutions run and then getting plucked out of nowhere by President Ruth Simmons because she had kind of followed me she knew me, she knew I was really interested in higher education and institutions and colleges and how they run. Um, and that just gave me the opportunity. So when I think about how I get here, I don't necessarily, it, it isn't a straight line. It's not something that most people are gonna end up following. Like it's not a path that you can follow, but there are lessons there in terms of saying yes to a lot of things in order to just constantly learn about what it is you want to be doing next. Mm -hmm. And that's basically how I ended up at Brown. And then the rest of it is all, you know, got plucked here, got plucked there. I love to tell students, I've never gotten a job I've applied for, like ever, <laughs> right? So it, it has always been, you know, networking and being places and saying yes and getting known and being curious and just trying stuff out and, um, people will come to you. I mean, I, when I was at, at the ed school, Tom Kane, who's a big researcher, didn't know me from anything, but I just heard about me and hired me to run, help him create a center for education policy research. 
Mm. I was like, okay, you don't know me. Why are you hiring me? And he's like, oh, I've heard about you. And so we start telling me his problems for the center. I'm like, oh, I know how to fix this. And so I would just go and I did it. I was like, okay, I can run the center. I can help you with this. That led to the Gates Foundation and a bunch of other things. But um, just putting yourself in a position to learn and try new things and really have it feed into understanding how institutions work. And that was my, that was my main thing. Like the thing I loved about GSE, the one of the main lessons I got there was recognizing where I wanted to make impact and the unit I wanted to make impact, right? So I started there and it was like, okay, well, do I want to do research in federal policy, state policy? Do I want to do, you know, I had done work in pedagogy, you know, all this other stuff. Love the fact that this colleague of mine wants to make a difference in third grade education, right? Like, thank God, because that's not what I want to do. <laughs> but part of the, my journey at GSE was recognizing I want to make an impact on an institution and help move them forward because I think institutions matter. And I think that they can make a huge difference in students' lives. So I know that really doesn't entirely answer your question. No, it's a little it's but... Yeah. And it's a good segue to my next question where I, you know, I had read a story where you were quoted saying you thought you wanted to be a college president. And um, I'm curious if your experience being chief of staff for multiple presidents now, um, has that influenced your thinking on that subject? You know, that's so funny because it's like it could go either way, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes and no. You know, I think I've worked for three very different presidents. And they they each have made huge impacts at their institutions. And um, I'd like to think that I was part of helping make that impact. I know I did that at Dominican. But by the time I got to Brown, I mean, Ruth Simmons was Ruth Simmons, right? Um, I'd like to think I'm doing that here. Um, has it changed the, the aspiration? It depends on the day. I, I literally, it depends on the day. And I also know that... Um, the presidency is not something you kind of apply for, you know? It's so idiosyncratic to the needs of the institution, fit, timing, you know, there's so many variables that when I think about it, it's like, it's totally not up to me. I mean, literally, it's not up to me. And either someone will recognize that I'm someone they need at the time that they are looking, um, and that it aligns with what I want to be doing next or not. And I'm, I take a very kind of ride it out kind of way and see what happens with it. I mean, sure, one can aspire to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're good for the institution. Sure. And, and for me, it really is about the institution, you know, and I think that college, pre there are a lot of college presidents who aren't in it for the institution. They're in it for their own ego. They're in it for um, political capital in order to do the next thing or, you know, stepping stone to the next bigger, better institution, that kind of thing. Um, I went into this business because I think I can make a difference on institutions. So that's what I'm going to do. And if it's in this role, if it's in another role, then fine, good. As long as I'm making an impact, I'm happy. So you have a fascinating journey, and I understand your parents immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines <laughs> yeah. uh, with $5 in their pockets, and there was a point where you ultimately had to leave school during your sophomore year at Brown um, yeah. because of financial difficulties in your family. I, I was wondering if you could just tell us the, the short version of that. I find it really fascinating. 
Yeah. So basically my, my, my parents had gone bankrupt, right. And they couldn't afford Brown. So I went home, um, and worked to put, so my, uh, my middle sister was a first year in college and my youngest sister was a senior in high school. And those were two great years for me. So I wanted to make sure that they could have the same great year that I had when I was a senior in high school and a first year in college. So I went home and worked like whatever. I was scooping ice cream at Hillary's ice cream. I was doing uh, nighttime bookkeeping at a doctor's office and all the money went to Grace's proms and Antoinette's books and, you know, those kinds of things. And then mysteriously, I get to go back to Brown. Now, I didn't know why or how. I just got to go back. So I was like, okay, great. I'm back at Brown. And But I was worried because I knew that my parents weren't, you know, doing well monetarily. I, you know, I ended up getting all these jobs on campus, running around like a lunatic, multiple jobs on campus. And upon graduation from Brown, my, my parents, my mom told me, you know, you only got to go back because I won the lottery. And, and I was like, wait, how, how much money did you win? And she, she, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to get them out of debt and get me back to Brown and, and get loans so that I can finish college, right? So, so the notion of giving back to higher ed was really all about, you shouldn't have to go to college because you win a damn lottery ticket. So, I, you know, I, part of my drive to do something in higher ed is I didn't want it to come down to that for students. Hmm. Um, and, and I was, I was lucky. I was really, really lucky. Uh, my mom, my mom was lucky. And so that was, that's the lottery ticket story. Most people can't believe it. It's like, no, the only reason why it went to Brown is because my mom won the lottery. Was I it mean, a scratch like, ticket or was it like a numbers? You know, I have no idea. I, th- I think it was a scratch ticket because they <laughs> did a lot of those kind of scratch ticket things. And my mom did a lot of those and one, like, you know, 50 here, hundred sure. there, like, you know, she did that. That was kind of her thing. I think it was, you know, it was like probably five figures, which, yeah. you know, was a lot when you're broke. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you're in debt and it was more than enough to get them out of debt and out of enough of a hole so that they could get loans for me to go back. The thing that it taught me, though, was really thinking about what it is I wanted to do in college. You know, know, I was I went to college thinking, oh, I'm going to become a doctor. I hated every damn second of organic chemistry and biology. (laughs) So when I went back, I made sure that I was not going to do something I didn't want to do. The other thing that was really great was my parents were really just, you know, when I finally went back to Brown, they were really supportive of you need to do what you want to do. Like this is too valuable an opportunity to be studying something you don't want to study and you'll be fine. Like you'll be fine. It doesn't matter. So when I picked art history, my parents were like, okay, so when did you ever go to a museum in your life? Like, I, I don't know where this came from. My mom was sitting there going like, I can't understand how, th- where this girl came from like, that picked art history. Um, but, th- but there are stories of being a kid where it's clear that I was probably going to end up doing something like this. But um, so that, yeah, that's basically what happened, I think. Uh, and later on, um, upon graduation was why I really wanted to do something in higher ed because the return to Brown um, really showed me how important it was to have the opportunity to go to college and and the opportunity to go to the college you wanted to go to. 
right? So it's one thing to go. It's another thing to actually go where you want to go. And, um, and that opportunity was, was, you know, something that I wanted to be able to pay back, which is part of the reason why I'm in higher ed. Yeah. Do you find yourself ever pulling from the lessons you learned during your undergraduate studies in art and art history? Oh my God. Are you kidding? Every day. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, art history is all about visual acuity and whatever. Who are we kidding? How many videos have we put out this year? A lot. Right. And you would think that that you know, uh, so for example, I mean, you've, you've been in the room where I, uh, President Casey is doing a video and I stop and I'm like, I'm moving stuff in the background. Like I, you know, yeah. what art history taught me was to see better. Like it's, it's just that. Um, and you also just, you know, it's tons of skills. It, it doesn't, I, I, my dissertation was on 17th century English art. Like, no, I don't use that content every day, sure. but I do use the skills that I learned to write that dissertation every day. <laughs> One of your other roles uh, is a secretary to the board of trustees. Yep. And uh, I'm always, um, I, I don't know if everyone has, uh, and I certainly don't, a, a strong grasp of how boards work, right? So mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about Colgate's board of trustees, mm-hmm. how, it, how it set up, you know, the membership, who are, like, how do these people get on the board? Like, how does it work? And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that the mystery of most boards is that they don't know what they do. Right. It's like there's a board that shows up every couple of months. And what do they do? Right. The most important thing that a board does for an institution is it thinks about the long view. Right. They are stewards for the long view of the institution They're Yes, they worry about COVID and how we plan. But ultimately, they need to worry about setting up Colgate for the next 50 years, 100 years. And that's what good boards do. OK, that's if they are focused on the long view. That, then they're in the right place. Um, and every board is different, right? Especially non, you know, nonprofit higher ed boards at different sizes and everything. Ours is slightly large for most places. It's 35, soon to be 38. But Brown's is like 42. Hmm. And so I was on that board of trustees and it's a bicameral board. So they're all slightly different. Um, the way this board runs, it's it's mostly alums, like 90% alumni, Um the few non-alums are actually parents of current students or recent students or, you know, some alums or whatever. Uh, and the way it works is, you know, people get nominated and we look at what are the institutional needs, right? So let me give you a very specific example. Um, we're doing a lot of building on campus, right? We're rebuilding Ho. We're building middle campus. We're looking at athletic center. We need to have on the board expertise in real estate and construction, right? And so we look to make sure we have that. That's a perfect example. Or another uh, another priority of the board a couple of years ago, like 10 years ago, was to have more women. It was mostly male. They wanted to get it to 50-50. And you know, a couple of years ago, they got it to 50-50 male-female split. Right now, a real big push is to diversify the board racially and ethnically. And 
So they took a very concerted effort to do to, to in the nominations, governance and trustee development committee to make sure that the next cohort that they bring on is diverse. And, and they look to do it for the cohort after that. Um, it was also why they expanded the board from 35 to 38 so that they could get that diversity sooner um, simply because of the way term limits and things work out. It would just take too long if they just waited for the usual you know, kind of turnover that would happen. How so, long are the terms normally? Uh, so it's it's complicated, oh. of course. <laughs> there are young alums whose terms are only two years. Okay. Uh, and then there are trustee alums that are three-year terms, but they can be uh, re-upped a couple times. And then there's some other category. I, it's too complicated for me to remember, but <laughs> but normally uh, most alums will be on for like nine years. So if you have a fair amount of people who are in the throes of the middle of their term, it would take a really long time to add more diversity and youth to the board if we waited the normal course of turnover. So that's why we expanded this year. So so how you get on the board is partially a function of the board looking for certain things that it needs, right, Uh, in order to be able to function um, and, and serve its fiduciary responsibility, and then doing a call out to a number of different, you know, campus organizations for nominations from alumni council. There's a um, an ad that's put into the um, Maroon News as well as the magazine for nominations. Um, a lot of it's word of mouth, uh, you know, because it's it's mainly a, 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 a an alumni piece. So that's how we fill the board. But it's it's a comprehensive, complicated, arduous task because you really got to get people who are not only committed to Colgate, right? And um, and by committed, it's not just time and talent, it's treasure. It's That's what they, you know, it's a three T's. Um, you know, we want Colgate to be their number one philanthropic you know, focus. And I think that that's true for everyone on the board. Um, and then you got to think about what are the expertise needs that will help augment administration you know, background information, you know, that kind of thing. So the board functions as a way to expand some expertise capacity needed uh, at the institution. Interesting. Well, it goes without saying the past year was like nothing uh, any of us on campus have seen before. And you were tasked with helping provide for a commencement celebration for the the class of 2021. Yeah. Uh, As the pandemic ebbed and flowed around us during the, the planning months, can you talk about that process and how things developed through, when did the planning start and how did it change throughout? I mean, there were so many questions leading yeah. up to commencement that we just didn't know, um, you know, how we could even do it. Yeah, no. So what, and here's the thing that kind of cracks me up. Some people think we just like did it the week before. It's like, right. oh yeah, no. <laughs> we literally started meeting in January and, and we thought that we needed to come up with multiple scenarios just in case, but you gotta plan each one fully before you can execute whatever we were gonna execute. So we knew we had to to plan an all virtual one, which we figured, okay, we did that last year. We kind of have the playbook. There's some things we would probably tweak, but we had a plan for that one. So 
there are pieces of that that we wanted to, to take forward no matter what, right? Then we thought the next option was going to be in-person, no guests. So what would that look like? Where we would do it? You know, how many people are we talking about? What are the capacity constraints on campus? That kind of thing. And then the ideal situation was one with guests, but we never thought we'd get more than two guests per, per graduate. So we also thought maybe we can get one guest, but if we plan for two guests, that then you automatically get the one guest, right? So given these three scenarios, we needed to do all of them, no matter what, going forward from January on. The one thing from the virtual that we knew we were going to take forward, no matter what, was a slideshow like we did last year with all the graduates giving us a picture, and we would have it no matter what happened. If we had to use it for the virtual, fine. But if we could do in person, we would be able to reuse it in some different way, right? So, so that was a piece that happened. So that meant that we could start moving forward on trying to make, get the pictures, get the, you know, like getting pictures from students and putting that all together is not an insignificant task. I mean, ask Brian Ness, ask Kate, right? So, um, and then just simply getting all the pictures, right? You know, you give the students March 30th and, and literally I was getting pictures on March, uh, May 5th, right? So, you know, these kinds of things, just, you got to plan all that stuff up. Um, then of course there were all the guidelines that just kept changing. There were guidelines for commencement that New York state had put out last year that were really restrictive and we were really hoping that that wouldn't be the case. So we based the plan on that because we knew that was a worst case scenario, right? And if we could do that, then scaling back would be easy in the same way that if we could plan for two guests, but we could only have one, we would be able to do that. So thankfully things worked out in terms of the state, you know, guidance on commencement coming you know, kind of going our way. So we were able to do the optimal one. But the key thing is that every couple of weeks, stuff shifted. And so we had to change, you know, change change horses in midstream kind of thing um, and plan accordingly. And so we were constantly doing this kind of plan for the worst, as well as get what you need as much as possible so that we can start to execute later. Um, so yeah, you know, here's the thing. It, it takes a village to do this. I mean, it took a it took a village to do this when it was the normal commencement. Um, it takes a bigger village to do it when it's restricted, like it was. Um, so, but I credit just Colgate generally. You know, the university event staff, dean of the college staff, buildings and grounds. You know, it took a ton of people to come on board and help make this happen campus safety big time. And I, you know, I'm pretty happy with how it all worked out. I think parents were thrilled. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And I you think about, um, you know, the added complication of uh, verifying vaccination or testing, which is something that, you know, you would never think of in a regular year. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is it's complicated. Yeah. Right. So the vaccination thing, you would tell people you had to be fully vaccinated. Well, people didn't necessarily understand what that meant. And so their second vaccine was on was going to be on the 27th. And it's like, sorry, that's not fully vaccinated. You need to get tested. And then it's what kind of test and within how many hours. And, 
you know, you needed to be tested within 72 hours of the event. If it was 76, it didn't count. <laughs> and, or if, if that, if you're doing PCR and if you're doing antigen tests, it needed to be within six hours. And so there were lots of um, those kinds of things. But I think what made a huge difference was we started communicating with all the registered guests on a weekly basis with pretty much vaccine testing, all those things it, from April one, like the beginning of April, um, mostly. And by then, and at that time, we didn't know we would have an in-person graduation, right? So it was always just in case we can do this, we want to be able to execute on it. And that was the other big thing that made a big difference was, you know, planning for what we want with the hopes that it would go our way. And, and if you didn't plan for what you wanted, then you're scrambling, trying to get that that information late, forget it. That's just not, you know, we needed to know who was going to be in that stadium for contact tracing. You can't just show up. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's, that's why it was super complicated. And yet um, I feel like because we did really strong planning from the beginning, it made a difference. And listen, this is the strong planning is also how Colgate handled all of this well. You know, it has always been about really strong planning from the get-go. Um, and if you plan, then you can react. If you don't plan, it's all reaction. And, and that just leads to massive failures and mistakes. Having been there, you know, witness to how um, it looked like it was seamless and easy. And that's <laughs> what you want it to look like, right? Um, was there anything that went wrong or was there anything you wish we could have done differently? So we made, okay, this is going to sound really small, but it means a lot to me. We made three mistakes with three students who were supposed to be in the remote video who couldn't come to campus. And, and they were just human error. I mean, we were managing almost 700 students. Are you going to be here? Are you not going to be here? And some of it kept moving. And those three students were left out of that video and, and, you know, it seems like not that big a deal when you think three out of almost 700, but for those three families, it was massively disappointing. So, you know, I look back and I'm like, Ugh, you know, we should have just double checked, but I know that we had triple checked. It's just, so that, that was a little disappointing though. We're, we're redoing it as Brian as we're redoing it for them. Um, and, and hopefully that will help alleviate some of their disappointment, but I can't blame them, blame them for being disappointed. You know, I, I'm not too disappointed with how the day went. I mean, you know, the weather was amazing. Like things worked out. Um, yeah, I, you know, given everything, I was pretty pleased with how it all came off. I, I was surprised. <laughs> I mean, I think the I think the ending was a little, you know, like having everyone leave was not as organized as it needed to be. But at that point, I'm like. <laughs> we're done. I go. <laughs> Congratulations. Exactly. But people were really great. I mean, we we were worried about the egress just being too many people mashed together and not thinking about you know physical distancing and stuff. And um, everyone was really good about like no 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 there were rules and so we're gonna take this easy and while we're not you know we're not going out as um, scheduled as it, we had kind of hoped. Um, people did follow rules of coming, going out the way they came in and trying to stay away from each other. So all things considered, it worked out. 
there was a lot of comments. Uh, a lot of folks really liked Andy Kerr Stadium. And I, I don't know the last time or when we did Andy Kerr Stadium last. I can't remember. I've only been here eight years. But um, do you foresee that being a venue that we would use again in the future? Or was this just a one-time pandemic special? You know, that venue was perfect. The video board meant that everyone could see everything. Um I'm kind of hoping we can stay there. It hasn't been decided, but there's no bad seat there, which is also nice. And, you know, Taylor Lake is a beautiful location, but the mud, like if it rains at all, you're sitting in those seats and you're sinking. And so I'm I'm hoping we're going to, you know, see what other people think if they thought it was a good venue. I thought it was just beautiful to see those white chairs on the green Um field and it just it was a beautiful venue and the video scoreboard meant um it it, it was just really easy to see things and so i'm hoping we'll see <laughs> cast your vote people <laughs> <laughs> well you've made it to question 13 oh yay congratulations uh this is uh, i usually go a little off uh the beaten path here and uh in 2018, you gave a presentation to the American Political Science Teaching and <laughs> Learning Conference that was titled, How Can Civil Discourse on Social Media Forward Civic Engagement? Ah. And I want to know how it can. Can it? Okay. So when I was at Dominican, I put together this thing called College Debate 2016. And um, it was in partnership with the Commission on Presidential Debates. And I brought 150 students from all over the country, all 50 states, to come to Dominican and talk about the issues, right? And the whole point of it was to have these students then go back to their schools and use social media to engage with other students about the issues. I think it can. I think civic engagement can be improved with social media. But this is the key thing. It's not about parties. Like the whole point of the um, the program and everything was to have people talk to each other about the issues that matter to them and why, but in a personal way, right? So it's not some kind of platitude kind of issue-oriented thing. Um, here's a perfect example. Immigration matters to me because my parents are immigrants and I am a product of their struggle as immigrants in this country. And so how they came to this country and how they were supported and how, you know, I am an outcome of that matters to me. So when I talk to someone about immigration, it's not to, you know, and and this is what we taught the students. We wanted them to make it personal. And in making it personal, you can actually have a dialogue because it's the impersonal that gets people just throwing stuff at each other on social media. But once you once you have an empathetic approach to it, where it's, no, this is who I am thing, you can get somewhere. And I think you can do that in social media, but it has to be um, intentional that you're putting yourself out there as what the issue is and why it is about you specifically, not some big, you know, hairy thing that it is. Um, And so this is what we did with the students. And we had them really start to think about this and then post on their social media um, platforms 
about the issues that matter to them and really get at the personal of it in order to engage people with them as people, right? And once you start engaging, you know, it's really hard, I think, to gaslight someone when you know their struggle, right? When you become personally invested in them as a person and as a human being and who they are. And so that's what we did in this program. Um, and it was kind of great. I mean, it was, it was amazing to see, you know, one student be on the opposite side of another issue, but then talk about it because they didn't understand, they hadn't walked in the shoes of the other person in respect to that issue. And in doing so, you end up having a better understanding. And, and I think, um, and, and that's the divide that we need to cover right now, right? Where you bring to the table your authentic self to talk about those issues um, as a way to having someone else understand how it impacts you personally and having that other person become invested in you enough to understand it. And so one of the things we did, we, we brought this program called Bring It to the Table. And that's where this whole thing kind of started. And a lot of the students, you know, you post something, but they're, they're, what we asked them to do was engage the people who, who replied, who had a, a thought on this. And, you know, just don't, you know, ask questions of each other and, and really get to where a, a shared understanding of where each of you as people are on an issue can help you kind of get to realize that solutions to the problems that we have right now are not so straightforward. And it's going to take not just compromise, but it's going to take empathy and, um, you know, better listening across the table, across the issue, across a whole bunch of things that right now are just creating a greater and greater divide. So yeah, it was a great program. I loved doing it. I, I, you know, working with the commission on presidential debates was really fun and thinking about how to engage students with the tools that they have was what we really tried to do. How about so. a presidential debate at Colgate? Can I tell you, I actually uh, started thinking about that. Like how we, how we would do it. Cause I mean, essentially I worked on a submission to the commission on um, Dominican being a presidential debate site. And California has not hosted a presidential debate since the seventies. And it's, you know, I mean, who are we kidding? It's a huge population, right? So the closest they've gotten is, is Las Vegas at this point. Um, and so when I first got here, I actually talked to Professor Nina Moore. And I was like, listen, this is, this is how, I know how you do this. I know what are the, the, what are the things that, the challenges that they need to produce a show? Mm -hmm. And um, what are the things that are needed as an infrastructure on a campus? We actually have a lot of the things that you need. We have a nearby airport. Um, you know, Hamilton Airport makes a big difference. Yes, we're limited in terms of hotel space, but that, you know, an hour away is not that big a deal. We have lots of space. Um, we need better venues if we're going to do it, mm. but it is doable here. It's totally doable here. You have hosted two congressional debates. Yeah. No, I mean, a presidential debate's a whole other world of Oh, term. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we have hosted, so we have some experience with it. I think, um, and and I think this is a really good place to host, host a debate because of its rural location when so many of these, you know, so much of the debate and politics and stuff 
tends to forget about rural America. Mm-hmm. And so to be here would be really meaningful, I think, um, in that respect as well. Uh, I don't know if anyone else is interested in doing it here, but I, I know how to put together the application. <laughs> you know, like I've got some skill, I have some knowledge here that, that we could tap if we want to do this. But um, I think it could be a really cool thing to do. It is a really cool thing to do. I've seen it. I've also seen what it's done for campuses when they've hosted it. Um, it's allowed them to uh, use the event to improve infrastructure, IT, mm build certain things, that kind of stuff, but it's, it's not an insignificant enterprise. All right. I said that was the last question, but I have one more. Sure. Keep going. All right. All right. I love talking to you, Dan. You're fine. (laughs) You tell me if you want to answer it or not. What is the least glamorous thing you've had to do as chief of staff? And that doesn't have to be here at Colgate. It could be anywhere. And you don't have to name the president either. But I'm curious, as as chief chief of staff, I'm sure you know your day is so varied; it runs the gamut. Oh yeah, I'll um, tell you the least glamorous. Okay, you'll love this. Let's hear it. There was a dorm where a student hit the sprinkler, and it was like two in the morning, and you know I'm on the risk team, so I get the call, and I and I didn't live that far from campus, so I had to get to campus. And we were dealing with fire trucks and all the sprinklers were going off. Place was getting flooded. Like students, students' dorms were getting flooded. The least glamorous thing was trying to get the students out of there in the middle of a flood, in the middle of the night with nowhere to go and carrying like bags and bags of stuff and trash bags. And, you know, it was crazy. Um, That that was not glamorous. (laughs) <laughs> Hannah, thank, you, thank you so much for joining us on the show well that was 13 thank you so much for listening tell your friends and family about the podcast if you have any questions send them our way that's 13 at colgate.edu 13 the number uh and until next time when we return in august keep asking questions 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.